This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hey everyone, it's Matt Takamatsu, and today our guest is Brandon Crawford. Brandon is a criminal defense lawyer and partner at Ford & Crawford here in Ottawa. He was called to the bar in 2014 and now represents clients on a wide range of offenses in Ottawa and elsewhere across Ontario. He has been successful arguing cases at trial, summary conviction appeal, the Ontario Court of Appeal, and finally even the Supreme Court of Canada. And then on top of all of that, he also teaches trial advocacy at the University of Ottawa's Faculty of Law. So it's needless to say that he has a lot of valuable advocacy experience, and I'm grateful that he took the time to talk to us today. So Brandon, thank you for joining us. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So I'd just like to start by having you walk us through your journey through the law up until now, maybe starting with your initial decision to go to law school. Okay, sure. Um, I actually knew um, for some reason or another that uh, I wanted to be a criminal defense lawyer since I was maybe in grade five or six. And as you can imagine, that's a pretty wise decision to be making career choices, uh, pretty wise to be making those choices for yourself. So obviously, you know an awful lot about the road ahead of yourself. So maybe don't pigeonhole yourself when you're nine or 10 would probably be my best advice for people. But certainly for whatever reason, that was just something I was always drawn to. And that was the path I was going to take. Now, how about while in law school? Yeah, okay. So um, I did an undergrad in criminology because, again, I thought that would be a logical stepping stone to criminal defense. Uh, I'm not sure that it was or not, but uh, it got me the the undergraduate degree I needed. And while in law school, I did uh, a dual degree. So I did two years at Michigan State, which was a really cool experience, and uh, two years here at Ottawa U. And I try to take as many criminal law-related courses. And while in Michigan, I actually worked for the public defender's office in Washtenaw County, uh, actually representing clients charged with felonies. So that was a, a wonderful experience. It really solidified that I, this is the kind of work I wanted to do. And then while in law school up here, I had a couple jobs that were unrelated to criminal law, so they were, it was a lot to balance. But I did when it did fit my schedule, I would take criminal-related courses. And then ultimately, I did uh, an internship with what was James Ford's previous firm. And then I ultimately articled with them and uh, joined as an associate. And now James and I are, are working together. So given that the focus of this episode is going to be on uh, oral advocacy, mm-hmm. I was just wondering if you could explain to us um, why the oral component of advocacy is so important in uh, any practice of law. Why would we not just have um, parties submit written factums and affidavits and have a judge make a decision just based on these types of documents? It's a very interesting question. And I think, um, I think criminal law in general is, is known to have a very prevalent uh, portion of oral advocacy making up the cases relative to other types, which can be more uh, uh, record-based in writing. But I know for, in my experience, the oral component can be very valuable in telling your story succinctly and also having the immediate feedback from the decision maker, whether that's a judge, a tribunal, a panel, you may have very clearly laid out your argument for what you think is the point in your written work, but a judge can accept everything you've said, but take one very you know minor issue 
And it, it's, a, it's a great way of kind of getting to the point of what the decision maker is looking to know from you and from your, from your opponent. So I think the oral part is, is extremely important in ultimately presenting your case to the trier of fact or ultimate decision maker. When you could have made, maybe the law was crystal clear in your argument, and maybe its application to your facts was crystal clear. Maybe you persuaded yourself, but maybe there's just one component of your argument that just the judge is struggling with. And he can, he, he or she can just ask you that question within 30 seconds of you beginning, and, uh, and that can be the difference maker. So I think, I think that's why the oral component is extremely. It also sounds like you were touching upon uh, maybe body language or just reading the judge to see how they react to what you're saying. So I also feel you're touching upon that in-person aspect as well. Is that correct? Sure. And I mean, right now we're, we're moving away from the in-person in a lot of ways. And uh, because of uh, obviously adapting our measures because of the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot more advocacy is being done uh, by digital platforms such as Zoom. And I think there's a, a little bit that's going to be lost about the ability to read um, the decision maker and what they're trying to tell you, but that remains to be seen. I know people are, are uh, there's a lot of people that believe we're going in the right direction. I, I'm a bit old school in that regard, and I, I actually like the in-person. But I certainly think you can generally tell it if, if, you know, where they're, how they're responding to what you're saying. Now, being able to read a judge and, and decide whether you're going to be uh, successful or not, I, I wouldn't bet uh, anything on my ability to do that. I've left the room feeling great and been totally wrong, and I've left feeling terribly and uh, been totally wrong there too. So that one I'm not so sure, but certainly the interactive component is is important when you're trying. I mean, this is a person you're trying to persuade. So the ability to have some feedback from them, whether it's visual, non-visual, verbal, non-verbal, just that ability to have feedback as opposed to them reading your argument completely separated from you with no opportunity for you to clarify anything, there, there's a difference there for sure. Yeah, I'd imagine it'd be difficult, especially if there's like lag time between your connection and the judge's connection or um, just qual like audio quality issues or something. So uh, I'm also curious, you were talking about the judge. I was also curious about what, what is that like when you're on Zoom or something speaking to a witness, like you're cross-examining a witness? What is that relationship like? Well, I haven't done that yet, actually. And um, I've, I've insisted with, with the, you know, the advice of my client that when, since we've started to reopen the courts and, and many things have gone digital, the option is there to cross-examine a witness uh, via one of the digital platforms. But I've requested to do so only in person because I, I really believe in, in that interactive face-to-face -face, uh, experience as far as being able to look at the person when you're assessing, you know, whether they're being truthful or not, whether they're credible, whether they're reliable. So I've insisted on cross-examining witnesses in person. And ever uh, since the courts have reopened with the option to do it digitally, I've only cross-examined them uh, actually face-to-face -face through plexiglass. <laughs> but you'd feel like you'd lose an important strategic advantage if it was not saying this is going to be the case, but in, in a scenario where more there's a bigger push or pressure to go more online over zoom or something as it currently stands me personally yes and i know i know several of my peers uh don't necessarily agree with me there and uh you know i'm not i'm not suggesting that i'm right or wrong but my personal preference is absolutely to be in the same room um, i think there is a human element that when you're you know assessing the ability with assessing whether or not someone's telling the truth and, and you're, you're, you're pressing them on those issues i think being in person with them adds an element to that 
kind of strength of that questioning. Uh, now, can you see any maybe positive outcomes um, by going online? Maybe your your witness can make it into court or something. Your client can make it into court, and uh, you know, allowing them to call in or or go on Zoom or something through a computer or a computer that they borrow. Do you think that would allow them more flexibility? Yeah, I think I think there's a, a lot of opportunity there. And I mean, for as far as the things that currently go on in court, in my in my experience anyway, in the Ontario Court of Justice, which is where the majority of the criminal cases kind of go through, there are many types of proceedings that are, are in the system in addition to trials. And many of those are finding their, their, their home on Zoom now. And I think it's been, it, it seems to have made things much more efficient. Things can go more streamlined, and like you say, if there's if there's someone's unable to make it to court, you know that can be a big thing for witnesses to take a day off, uh, childcare, whatever else, maybe you know for them to be able to, to plug in from their from their home can certainly make things more accessible. There's a lot of advantages, efficiency, and otherwise to moving a lot of things that were happening in court online, and uh, you know it's this this is an unusual and unfortunate impetus for that, but I think. When the dust settles on COVID nineteen, our court system will have become much more efficient because of it. Have you guys moved away from facts yet? <laughs> no, <laughs> not entirely, but we're getting there. I mean, we're, we're we've moved away from believe it or not until you know basically April of this year. As as an accused person, you're entitled to all the disclosure, all the evidence that the crown has in its possession, and we were receiving those either by on CD ROM or facts or a combination of the two. And, uh, you know, many people don't even have computers with CD-ROM capabilities on them, right? Um, mm-hmm. So now we are moving to a digital hub of uh, electronic information to receive that uh, disclosure. It's much, much quicker, much more efficient, much more accessible. So that was a very positive thing. Now, I'd just like to shift gears a bit and focus more on um, your practice as it relates to oral advocacy. So what would a, a normal day-to-day look like for you right now? Well, they look very different right now um, because at any given point in time, I may have an, an infant hanging off of me in between uh, court calls. But uh, now there will likely be uh, some type of proceeding that's occurring via Zoom in the morning. And that's you know either a date setting appearance, maybe a, a guilty plea or some type of other to be spoken to. Appellate practice has now moved online. so. Court of Appeal hearings can happen even though the uh, the panel is in Toronto. We can do Court of Appeal hearings from from our own homes now, which has been, uh, that's been a, uh, something that's made that a lot easier to accomplish as opposed to having to drive to Toronto, stay in a hotel perhaps, only to argue it, you know, at the Court of Appeal. We can do that from our, from our homes now. So now, you know, there'll be a, a series of digital appearances and, you know, then uh, if, if I do have a trial, I, I would prefer to still do that in person. So I'm still going to the courthouse for that. Occasionally, I'm still going into my physical office, but often uh, I'll, I'll remain at the home office. And do things. So how often do you find yourself speaking in court, whether it's like in-person court or uh, like a virtual hearing during the week? Currently, I'm probably in court maybe three times a week. And I, you know, we have people that work in our office, such as our articling student, we have matters that are being addressed addressed in court every single day. And that's one thing that, that uh, criminal law has that uh, I think quite appealing to, to young potential advocates who, who really want the opportunity to work on that oral advocacy component. 
in criminal law, you will be in court every single day. So the only reason I'm not is because there's someone from our office speaking to my matters, but I have matters in court being addressed on the record every single day. So you say, so yeah, you, you, you say that um, you're speaking every single day. And then for somebody who wants to develop their oral advocacy skills, you know, that'd be a great benefit for them, right? Yes. So I'd assume that after a while, you enjoy a certain degree of, of comfort speaking in court, right? Yeah, I think, you know, if that's, it, you know, certain people are more comfortable with that kind of innately than others. But if it's, if that's a, a bit outside of your comfort zone, I think like anything else, just the more you do it, the more comfort you would likely develop with it, right? So, you know, if that's something that's just on the brink of your comfort zone, you know, force yourself, push yourself a little bit, and you absolutely will get the hang of it. And if you really can't get the hang of it, then you shouldn't do it probably. <laughs> Fair enough. Would you so? Would you consider yourself to be that kind of person that was, you know, relatively comfortable speaking in court right from the get go? Or that's an interesting question. I've never been particularly shy with speaking in public, but court can be an intimidating process. Um, it, it can be. It's it's very formal. Obviously, if if you have a respect for the courts, it's a very kind of it's a very sacred institution. So there's something very special about the privilege to be able to address a court. You know, you're there with perhaps a, a seasoned judge or perhaps a justice of the peace. You're there with other seasoned lawyers. You're there with crown attorneys that uh, are esteemed. So the, the, the whole thing can be a little bit intimidating for sure. But uh, again, you know, just, just ensure you're familiar with the right protocols and how to address things. Do your best to be polite and do your best to make sure you're not wasting anybody's time and know what you're about to say before you say it and uh, always say something that you know to be true. And as long as you stick to those things, I think you do absolutely feel comfortable. And uh, I would say I'm relatively comfortable, but but certainly the first few times, mm -hmm. the, the institution itself was a bit intimidating. Mm -hmm. And I'd imagine, you know, um, being nervous before speaking in court, maybe having those nerves, they could have like um, a beneficial aspect too, in terms of encouraging you to, you know, get your, your stuff straight you know, and become almost intimately familiar with the facts just so you can make sure that you don't embarrass yourself in court or something like that absolutely that 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 anxiety in the pit of your stomach can be a great driver to make sure that you know your stuff inside and out frontwards and backwards and uh anytime you're going to present something in court when it's a, a meaning you just you need to know your case better than anybody in the room and as long as you do you know it will work out for you every time you're obviously not going to win every case but you will come across and give the best job possible if you know your case as well as you could possibly know it and make sure you know your case better than anybody else does and uh, yes that that anxiety that fear of, of looking like an idiot in front of uh, all those people can certainly be a very effective driver to make sure you stay up a little extra the night before now you mentioned that you uh, your day looks you know very different day to day and you're doing a whole bunch of different things so does each task that requires you to engage um, your oral advocacy skills in any way, do they engage a very similar skill set, would you say, or would a different task demand a, a different set of skills? I think I think the skill set required for cross-examining a witness is very different than the skill set for presenting a legal argument, either at a trial or, or maybe on appeal. There are certain intangibles which you can bring to both of them that will benefit you. Again, preparation being the number one for all of it. Knowing the facts and the record inside and out will benefit you both uh, when cross-examining as it will for oral argument. But those are very different. 
those are very different skill sets, right? Examining a witness, um, you're going to want to you're going to want to have a certain comfort in speaking to them. You're going to want to develop your own style as far as how you want to approach someone when you're attempting to attack their credibility or reliability. Some people are very confrontational. Some people are more conversational. You're going to have to figure out what works best for you. And then when you're presenting an oral argument, that's that's very much a different skill set. You're going to want to be very well-versed, but you're going to want to be eloquent in this presentation. And some people are good at both. Some people are good at one or the other. Um, but the, I would say that those, those are very different skill sets. Mm-hmm. And then for the most part, it seemed like you were talking about in a lower court, like before a trial judge right there, correct? Uh, yeah. Well, uh, well, with the legal argument one, that would be, that would be either uh, your legal argument before a trial judge or in appellate court, whether it's court of appeals, Supreme Court, mm-hmm. uh, presenting your legal argument. Uh, again, that involves the application of the law to the record that you're trying to persuade them on. And uh, that's a very different engagement of skills than it would be to cross-examine a witness. Mm-hmm. What when, when yeah when you're arguing like certain contestable facts or something, right? So it's it's not uncommon for a lot of students to follow like a very structured format when doing like a presentation or some other assignment requiring their their oral skills. Like for example, many students like myself included, uh, we use a script that we'll type up beforehand and we'll read and we'll. Uh, rarely deviate from. I'm sure you you know what I'm talking about from your experience teaching trial ad. Sure. But now um, from lawyers, we're watching lawyers in court, the ones that are obviously really good spend way more time like looking at and speaking to the bench than they do referring back to their notes. But sometimes you catch glimpses of the notes of these lawyers and they look like pages of like disorganized handwritten scribbles or just jot notes on a Word document. It makes me wonder, like even if they were referring to these how could that be any help? Because uh, I personally, and I know a lot of my friends and also in school, we'd have a hard time advancing an argument if we didn't have our thoughts or our points uh, neatly typed out and organized in our hands. Maybe that's maybe because we're, we're not as comfortable with it as like a seasoned veteran lawyer like yourself. But obviously a lawyer that's in court regularly, they're somewhat of an expert in public speaking. You know, they're hired for the quality of their advocacy and like the skill set that they can bring to the trial. So I, I guess my question for you out of that really long premise would be, how do you prepare to speak in court, whether it's like before a judge or a witness on cross-examination? That was actually a really good question, uh, long-winded as it may have been. And and uh, and I agree with you, uh, you know, when dealing with students, uh, the script is certainly something that's kind of there as a crutch and a safety net, right? Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of value in typing out something akin to a script as far as the jot notes type thing. For two reasons. A, uh, I, I think the human brain generally tends to work this way, and I know mine does. I retain a lot more information having actively typed it into a document. Um, the thought of putting it down and organizing it helps me retain a little bit. And then having notes with me serves the purpose that if somehow I get sidetracked, uh, that I, it just makes sure I didn't miss anything. So I will refer to them before I, I close my case, you know, or, or leave a witness. But Certainly, you need to get away from relying on them too heavily. They are a safety net. They are a crutch. Um, again, so many things are missed if you're not engaging. If it's a witness and you're looking at your notes, you're not paying any attention to the body language of the witness. You're not seeing how they're responding to you. You can miss extremely valuable things, such as eye rolls, a sigh, perhaps looking at people in the in the crowd. Those are all cues you need to be aware of, so you need to be engaged with that person. Now, obviously, you, you I would write out 
general areas for questioning. That's generally what I do. I put general subheadings and then a couple of kind of roadmap type things where I want to go within that area. That I write down. And that way, at the end, I will assess if we did everything. With the judge, if you're looking at the script the whole time, you're not speaking to the judge. You're not speaking to the decision maker. A lot is lost right there. Your ability to speak to them, to persuade them is lost. And again, you're not paying attention to any cues that they may be giving. They may be subtly telling you to move on to the next point. You know, they may be subtly going, okay, this is really good. Maybe tell me a little bit more. So much would be lost if you're just there stuck in your notes. So I would strongly encourage people to get away from that. Rely on notes. Again, I find there's a lot of advantage in making them because that helps you process and retain the information. Bring summaries with you so that you have you don't forget in the moment when there's stress around to rely on certain things. But move away from reading from a script because so much will be lost in, in either component of questioning a witness or presenting an argument. So I'd like to switch gears and talk about your experience um, with the Supreme Court. So I know you and your partner... Uh, you successfully argued that a mandatory victim surcharge was considered cruel and unusual punishment or treatment before the Supreme Court and its decision that that type of fee was unconstitutional and violated Section 12 of the Charter. Mm-hmm. And that was R.V. Boudreaux. So I know I know your partner was the one that presented the oral argument, but I also know that you were so heavily involved in the case. So I was hoping you could just provide us with some maybe insight about how you were preparing for this hearing. Thank you for noting that I was also important in this case. I do appreciate that. I'll have to remind him of that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, th- that was an interesting case because we'd um, lost at the Court of Appeal, but we were very strong believers in our argument. And then um, at the case from Quebec, we were on a case called R.V. Michael. R.V. Boudreau was a case from Quebec, and it was already uh, headed on up. So we had to first basically get permission from the Supreme Court to, to be heard altogether. So we achieved that firstly. Again, this was a somewhat interesting case because there were so many cases together. I think there were ultimately four cases being heard together, all advancing the same argument. And then there were a number of interveners, which are, uh, which are advocate groups that aren't directly involved in the case, but basically provide legal argument for interested parties uh, that also the court can you know, have the advantage of hearing their input from when deciding an issue that has importance beyond just the litigants themselves. So we had a number of parties and a number of litigants, so we had a significantly shorter period of time to argue. So one thing James and I had to focus on was making sure we were really succinct. We didn't want to overlap in any of you know, what, our, what other counsel would say. We wanted to just advance uh, the one key part of our argument and make sure the court heard from us. Uh, so they were very effective and punchy and succinct, and ultimately seven of the justices, from my recollection, uh, agreed to it. And, and and how did you prepare to make sure that it was succinct and not overlapping? Were you just constantly refining it back and forth with James? Or yeah, I mean, we did. We we certainly did a refinement. One thing actually that was was uh, was really helpful was um, uh, it's a there's a an institute at uh, Dowling, I believe, was the was where they were from. And you can uh, you basically appear before some people that have argued at the Supreme Court several times, and you kind of do like a mock argument. So uh, mm. you set up the time to be identical to what you'd have. They interject and ask questions that they would anticipate would be the type of a questions you'd get from the bench. 
Uh, and that was actually a very, it was almost like a moot uh, before some people that had appeared before the Supreme Court before. So it was a very helpful exercise. Interesting. So, so it seems like you're just always constantly refining your skills also, like what they recommend students to do in law school. So. Oh, absolutely. You're refining, you got to refine that, you know, from, from law school to the day you retire, every, every opportunity, every day is an opportunity to refine. Mm -hmm. Your writing needs to get better. Your oral advocacy needs to get better. You know, always pay attention to the people around you. You're, you're going to be, you're going to be surrounded by different types of lawyers and there's always an opportunity to learn. There's always an opportunity to get better. And every day is experience you can benefit from. You're going to make many mistakes and each one of those is a wonderful learning opportunity. You're always refining and always getting better. So we're, we're nearing the end of our time right now. So I just have one more question for that. Maybe you could answer for our listeners. Uh, and that is, what would you perceive to be the most important trait or characteristic of a successful criminal defense lawyer or just a trial lawyer generally? So example would be like courage, a hard work ethic, you know, passion about the work that they're doing, something along those lines. Yeah, I think I think it really it really begins with a work ethic. You have to be absolutely insane about your work. You have to be obsessive. You have to know your case better than anybody. Mm -hmm. From there, there's obviously a, a valuable subset of skills. The ability to, to be succinct and state the most important part of your argument, either in writing or orally, say this is the issue. To frame your issue very succinctly and present it succinctly, it's, it's so advantageous when you're trying to persuade somebody because you know we can have a, tender, a tendency to be very wordy as people, but the ability to persuade really comes down to your ability to be succinct and say, this is what the issue is. But it all begins with a work ethic. If you don't have the tendency to put in the time to make sure you know your case better than anybody else, uh, then it's not going to work. If you can do that, that is an important step one, and the rest likely will come. You know, it really, the other stuff you can learn, and you can develop, but work ethic is, is it's a, you either have it or you don't. And if you don't, mm -hmm. it's not going to work. Yeah, the the like the essential foundation, I guess you're saying, is hard work ethic. Absolutely, and and of course there are there are you know skill sets beyond that that will can differentiate the good from the great, but that's that's a starting point. And then when you get more nuanced, I would absolutely say the ability to be succinct is something that, that uh, can really separate a great a great advocate from someone who's not, not so. Well, Brendan, that's all the time that we have. I uh, really appreciate that you took the time out of your day to come and speak with us. So thanks for coming. My pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show.